Hello and welcome to this edition of Nightlight. I'm going to take you into a live service where I was speaking on a Sunday morning not long ago on the subject of the spirit of religion. Now, rather than talk uh, in the introduction about that, I'll, I'll let it speak for itself. The message can speak for itself. And then whatever time we have left at the end, I'll come back and uh, talk more to you about this issue. But go with me now to this Sunday morning service where we are dealing with breaking the power of the spirit of Antichrist, which is the spirit of religion. Now, every one of us in this room, to some degree or other, has been affected by a spirit of religion, uh, especially in the Bible Belt. I mean, you just can't hardly uh, escape it. But uh, <clears throat> the funniest ideas uh, come out of the spirit of religion. Now, spirit of religion can be something as silly as fining your children for smiling in church, or it can go all the way into demonic murder. And, and uh, anywhere in between, there's all kinds of different layers of, uh, of the spirit of religion. I want to talk to you for a few minutes about that this morning because uh, I, I, I expect you, in the name of Jesus, to recognize the spirit of religion when you see it and to do battle against it with all your body, soul, mind, and strength in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen? Amen? Y'all see, you're already acting Sunday morning. See, before I can pray, i got to talk to you about Sunday morning spirit of religion. Sunday morning spirit of religion is what y'all are doing right now. It's this, okay, the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence. <clears throat> like, you, you, like the woman who told her little boy, she said, "Be quiet when we go in here. There's, there's people. There's, there's, there's people sleeping in here. Be, be quiet when you go in here. Go to church." Uh, don't don't get into that. Uh, you know, do whatever you've got to do to break out of that. Okay, right now. Because we're going to pray. Now, that's not the signal to go into a coma. Oh, good. Pray. <laughs> Father, I thank you that we enter your gates with thanksgiving. We enter your courts with praise. We are thankful to you and we bless your holy name. And we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would just move among us this morning. That we would seek your face with all our heart, Lord. Uh, like Sid said to me a while ago, we don't want to be a seeker-sensitive church. We want to be a God-sensitive church. We want to seek the face of God and be sensitive to His Spirit, not sensitive to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we just ask you, Father, to just make yourself manifestly known among us in this place. In Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, the spirit of religion is ultimately the spirit of murder. There's a principle in Bible study called the law of first usage. And that is where you find something happening first, that becomes the foundation for how that principle moves all the way through Scripture. Uh, the first usage of the word blood, for instance. First usage of the word integrity. First usage of the word sin. All those words, you find out where they're used first, and it sets the foundation for the way that, that, that moves through the rest of the Scripture. Well, when it comes to the subject of, of, of a religious spirit, the first act of religion that we see in the Scripture, what is religion? The, the root word in Latin means to work. It, it basically means to, to, to work hard, and then it eventually came to mean working hard to please a deity. And so the concept of religion is working hard to please an angry deity. That's how it evolved or devolved. Now, the first act of working hard to please a deity that you find in Scripture is who? Cain. Cain is going to, he's going to do something to let God know that God doesn't need to give him grace. He's going to be right with God in his own strength. And so this act of religion that God confronts him by and says, Cain, sin is crouching at your door and it's waiting to pounce on you and you've got to, to master it. And the way to master it is to yield to me and humble yourself and don't come across with this arrogance that you're coming across with that causes you to be so angry at your brother who recognizes that he can't do anything to be right with me except trust me. You understand? Grace 
is there at the very beginning. I mean, we get some of the goofiest ideas about how God relates to people. Some people think God saved, Old, Old Testament people related to God through law. And New Testament people relate to God through grace. Well, that's not accurate at all. But that's a whole other subject we can't get into this morning. What I really want you to think about is that the foundation of religion produced the first murder. Okay? Are you with me? Now, that is exactly why, and I'm not trying to be funny, that is why churches get dead. We talk about dead churches. You ever notice how often the word dead and church go together in our culture? It's a dead church. How was the service? It was a dead service. Dead church, dead service. Why is dead and church so easily put together? Because the spirit of religion is the spirit of death, and the spirit of religion finds its most welcome spot in most churches. Churches love to welcome religion, and religion brings death. Now, religion is any kind of system we develop that takes the place of the living God. Anything that we do to replace the presence of God with whatever we need to fill the emptiness where God should be. That's why Billy Graham said years ago, 95% of the work of the church would carry on if the Holy Spirit left. Billy Graham said that. I didn't say that. Why would he say that? Because he'd had a lot of experience with churches. He'd had a lot of experience. Listen. Some of the meanest people I've ever met in my life are in church. And some of the stupidest arguments I have ever seen in my life have been in church. I don't know. I probably shouldn't tell you this statistic. I don't have any idea why this statistic is true, but it is true. You know, statistics sometimes are not true, but this one happens to be true. There's a sociological fact that to the degree, every, every city has a certain number of bar rooms and a certain number of churches, and they parallel. <laughs> if, there's, if there's 50 churches, there's about 50 bar rooms in, in, in large cities. I, 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 may, I'm, I may be wrong, but I think it, it's because they trade, maybe they trade back and forth. Maybe they go to church as long as they can stand it, and then they gotta go get a drink. <laughs> <clears throat> See, the sad fact is, if you could get the drink of the wine of the Spirit that the Holy Spirit intended to be in the life of the church, you'd never go waste your time in some bar room trying to get the counterfeit. Amen. You'd be filled with the Spirit, and you'd be filled with joy, and you would act drunk. You know, drunk people throw money away like it's just going out of style. So you get, to, you know, get your congregation good and drunk on the Spirit. You'd never have to raise money. You'd never have to manipulate anybody, you know. <clears throat> But, but religious spirits come in all kinds of, all kinds of funny, uh, if you want to know if I have a text this morning besides Cain killing Abel, if you'll go with me to John chapter 5, I think, by the Lord's grace, that's where we'll end up, but I want to, I just want to talk to you for a few minutes about this religious spirit. I got a friend in Pennsylvania who was raised Amish. I love the Amish. And, uh, you know, gas prices keep getting more like they are. We might all love the Amish. We might end up moving near some Amish people so we can uh, have some good crops and things. But, but the Amish, are, they, they've got their own brand of religious spirits. I mean, uh, he told me, he said, I was raised Amish. He said, we actually had certain groups of Amish that we would not relate to because they had chrome on their buggies. We were the non-chrome buggy people. And they were the chrome buggy people. And he said, now we had non-chrome buggy people who had chrome, but we spray painted it black. So you couldn't see the chrome. It was still chrome, but we Okay. Now some of you are looking at me like I'm making this stuff up. But you know I'm not making this stuff up if you've been around. We have our own version of it. I had a lady not long ago who was very angry at me. I spoke at a church uh, not far from here. And uh, I did what I'm doing right now. She came up to me, and she was very sweet, and she wasn't trying to be hard or harsh, but she said, uh, I know you're from a different generation from me, and she wasn't really that much older than me, but I liked her thinking that. And, but she said, uh, don't you think it's a little disrespectful that you, you don't stay behind the pulpit? 
That's why I like these kind, you know. <laughs> that you can, I can move the holy pulpit around. I said, man, will you show me somewhere in Scripture that somebody's supposed to stay behind a pulpit? I don't even know what a pulpit is. Where that? That's a funny word, isn't it? Pulpit. Pulpit. It's not like pulp, pulp wood, pulpit. Where's that word come from? Holy pulpit? Do you know how Catholic Baptists are around here? I've never seen so much Catholicism as when I got around uh, around certain Baptist groups in this area. Now, it's not just Baptist. Four Square's got its version of it. Assemblies of God got their version of it. But uh, 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 let me give you the Baptist. I'll, I'll probably make everybody angry before the morning's over. That's not my goal, but it just may happen. I don't know, you know. But he, uh, Baptist, uh, you have to have the pastor there for everything. Pastor's got to come see you in 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 in, uh, in in hospital. Why? Why does your pastor, who's already run ragged, have to go see everybody who's in the hospital? And since sickness is part of the religious spirit, and 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 we embrace sickness as some kind of spiritual uh, spirituality, sometimes half the church is sick half the time. And so, and since there's bitterness and unforgiveness that goes back thirty years. Then bitterness and unforgiveness produce sickness, so the other half's getting sick while the other half's supposedly getting well. He's going to go see somebody in the hospital at least three or four, five, six times a week. When has he got time to seek God to, to get uh, filled with the Spirit enough to get those people healed? Are you, am I making any sense this morning? Pastor's got to be there for every marriage. He's got to be there for the deaths. He's got to be fit for the graduations. He's, I mean, every argument. What happens when a pastor has three or four emergencies in his church at the same time? Which one is he supposed to go to? Well, of course, whoever he goes to becomes the one who likes him. And then the other three can be mad and split and go start three or four more other churches. See, you see, I don't, I don't have to be antagonistic to describe this. All I have to do is describe it, and it is antagonistic in, on its own right. See? And this, this crazy system of religion, you know, I thought for years, that, that, you know that old song, Peace Be Still, Peace Be Still? You know, the winds and the waves shall obey His will, peace. I thought until I could learn to read that that song was Pinch Be Still. I did. I'm not being funny. I thought it was somebody had written a song about it because well, between the age of three and five, I kept a bruise right here on my leg where my grandma, she could get those two fingers right in there and she could get a hold of just enough of my skin to pinch the fire out of me. And she would say in church, she'd pinch and then she'd say, be still. <laughs> and I thought, somebody wrote a song about that. Pinch, be still. Pinch, be still. <clears throat> now, is it any wonder if you get, you know, you get fined for smiling in church in one generation, you get, you know, you get your leg pinched off in another one. Is it any wonder by the time a kid gets old enough to have a driver's license, he wants to go somewhere else other than church? Now, technically speaking, 60 to 70 percent of evangelical young people do not return to church once they hit that age. Why? Well, it's no mystery to me. Why? Look, look at church. Look at church. We are in a crisis in American Christianity. I want to tell you something. It's not a crisis of sexuality. It's not a crisis of... Uh, uh, more moral issues. Though, though I understand all that. That's not the crisis. I'm not talking about the pagan part of the church that doesn't even know the Lord anymore that is going off chasing after demon worship. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the, the true church. The part of the church that loves Jesus, says it loves Jesus, wants to follow Jesus, wants to obey Jesus. And here's the crisis. The crisis is we have made an altar out of education and information. We are worshiping our minds. Now, don't, if you've been around me at all, you know I, I'm an educator. That's part of what I do. I'm not anti-education. But the purpose of spiritual education is only one thing, and that's relationship. <clears throat> Intimacy of relationship. 
the purpose of knowing the Word of God is to draw near to Him. Okay? But it's amazing how the spirit of religion manages to take the love letter meant to draw us to Him and make the love letter the end in itself. So we end up studying the love letter. We study it in all kind of different translations. We, we talk about it. We talk about what part of history it belongs in. And by the time the spirit of religion is through with the love letter, part of it is for the past and part of it is for the future. And you ain't got nothing to do in the, mid, in the middle except wait for the rapture. Okay? Now, I'm going to try my best to get to my text <clears throat> as I get back behind the holy pulpit. <laughs> the Pharisees were the fundamentalists of their day. The Sadducees were the liberals. Pharisees were the Bible believers. See, if I do this like I want to do it, I'm going to sound angry, and I'm not angry. And if I do it like I want to do it, I'm going to sound snide and critical, and I'm not trying to be snide and critical. I'm just tired of church. I, I'm tired. I'm tired of it. I've been tired of it for 30 years. But it's just finally got, I don't know if I just reached the age where I figure I can get away with saying it out loud or what, but if the Spirit of God doesn't come and manifest Himself through us and to us and among us, I don't want to keep going through this thing we do. I mean, I don't, you know. He's got to come. I love y'all, and I love seeing you. And I miss John. See, John snookered me. He didn't tell me he wasn't going to be here. I love seeing John. I love seeing y'all. I love seeing my family. But if the Holy Spirit doesn't come, if he's not free to manifest himself, we can meet at the ballpark. You know, we can have a hot dog together somewhere. That's okay. But, but see, most church is like all day singing and dinner on the ground where everybody comes and they all thought somebody else was going to bring the chicken. You know what I'm saying? See, the Bible says when we gather together, one is supposed to have a psalm, one's supposed to have a hymn, one is supposed to have a tongue, one is supposed to have an interpretation, one's supposed to have a word of knowledge, one's supposed to have a word of wisdom. Everybody's supposed to bring something. One's supposed to have the tater salad, one's supposed to have the chicken, one's supposed to have the biscuits, one's supposed to have the apple pie. And it all comes together and it mixes properly. But see, what we've got is this spirit of religion where y'all come and become a spectator and I'm the spectator sport. Or whoever's up here. And you're hoping that the song and dance this morning is something a little more entertaining so you can stay awake. What is that? How did we get there? How did we get to that from the New Testament people of God who turned the Roman Empire upside down or literally right side up? How did we get from people, average, normal, everyday people, who on the way to wherever they're going were healing the sick, casting out devils, prophesying, ministering in the power of the Spirit, and just kind of, that was their, that's normal Christianity for them. How did we get from that to this? And, and y'all realize I'm saying things here this morning that I could never get away with saying in most gatherings called church. I would have already been, I'd have already been executed ten minutes ago. Some of you are even worried about me. Because, <laughs> see, we like religion because religion gives us a place to hide from God. Do you realize you can come to this building every week and go through whatever motions you need to go through? Good. I mean, I'm not saying the motions are, are bad. I'm not accusing you of being fake at all. I'm just saying, think about this. You can come here and do this and feel better about yourself in some weird way and ignore God the rest of the week. And then by Saturday, you're feeling low and looking forward to coming back to church. And then, then every now and then we have these things called uh, revivals. Now, uh, I don't know that y'all do that. Y'all don't do that. But I mean, it's part of the culture here to, you know, in the spring, have a revival. Folks, you can no more schedule a revival than you can schedule an eclipse of the sun. 
In fact, you can, you can schedule the eclipse more accurately. Now, here's something else we've been taught about revival. I am going to read this text. But there's something else we've been taught about revival. We've been taught, this is what we've been, I was taught this in Bible school. We were taught that revival is where the church goes along and it gets, it gets a little low. And then at some point, God sovereignly, for no apparent reason than his sovereign whim, injects the church with power to bring the church back up where it needs to be for a little while. And then the church runs off that anointing until it gets low again. How many of you have heard this? Am I the only one who's ever heard this? That's baloney. The church is normal, and then it backslides. And by the grace and mercy of God, the power of the Holy Spirit comes in and wakes us back up to normal, and then we backslide again. But what we've done is we've made this the normal, and we call this revival. Like one of my professors used to say, when the, the church is... The church is so, uh, how do you say it? The church is so subnormal that when we get back up to 98.6, we think we have fever. <laughs> See, let me, let me tell you, normal church is to walk in here or wherever you are, and the, the presence of the Holy Spirit is so real in you and in me and in somebody else and in somebody else that if a brother or sister walks in and they're low, one of us, one of us is going to have the word that breaks the yoke off them, that encourages them, that lifts them up. One of us is going to have the word of knowledge that brings healing, the word of knowledge or wisdom that brings guidance and comfort. Everybody has something to give, and nobody's sitting around trying to figure out <clears throat> what's it going to, you know, who's going to. Sp yeah, I love, I love, I love it when when nobody knows who's going to speak. Nobody knows if anybody's going to speak. Don't know what God's going to do. See? But see, in atmospheres like that, you can't hide from God. You can't come in and say, I'm going to just kind of get through this service and do the best I can and wiggle out the door and feel better about myself for a few days until I hit a low again. No, in an atmosphere like that, you'll be exposed, not in a way that hurts you, but in a way that saves you. See? You can't go out shacking up on Saturday night and then sneeze in here on Sunday morning and do this. Holy Spirit might tell somebody. I mean, Holy Spirit might just say very gently, well, the Lord knows where you were last night and he knows who you were who you with and he knows what you were doing. Don't you want to get that off your back this morning? How would you like to go to a church like that? <laughs> Sound, I know it does. It, it, it does. It does sound good. It sounds good to me, too. In fact, if I'd have had that when I was younger, I wouldn't have had so many bruises and scars to get over when I was older. John chapter 5. Do you all realize that Mary Magdalene, if she got in an argument with a Pharisee over theology, who would win? The Pharisee would stomp her in the, in the ground. He, he would know way more than she knows. Which one would you rather be? Yeah, I'd rather be Mary. Because it ain't what you know, it's who you know. And it ain't even what you know or who you know, it's who knows you. On the day of judgment, Jesus will say to some people, I never knew you. And they will be people who have done all kinds of religious things. And he will say, I never knew you. And that word know, in both Greek and Hebrew and English, means intimacy of relationship. Like Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived. It has to do with relationship. Knowledge by union, not knowledge by study. Now, I'm not anti-study, but let me tell you something the Jews understood that we Gentiles need desperately to understand. The Jews understood we don't study to gain information. We study to revere. We study in order to worship. We study in order to worship. Study should bring you deeper and deeper into relationship. I think I've told you all this story before, but one of my closest friends uh, is um, Mark Fee, whose father is Dr. Gordon Fee, who's one of the most respected Greek scholars in the world. 
Dr. Fiend was raised in the Assemblies of God Church, and his pastor loved to say this every Sunday. He'd say something like this. He'd say, I'd rather be an, I'd rather be an ignoramus on fire than a scholar on ice. <laughs> and Dr. Fee was about 17 years old, and he'd heard his pastor say that for years. I'd rather be an ignoramus on fire than a scholar on ice. And the Holy Spirit spoke to him and said, I want you to be a scholar on fire. And Dr. Fee has become just that, a scholar on fire. Mark told me one time when he was about 17 years old, he walked in his dad's study to try to get the car keys or something. And his dad was sitting at his desk with a Greek text open in front of him. And he walked up, not paying attention, and he got right up to his dad and he saw his dad's face was covered with tears. And he was, he was, he wasn't even there. He was somewhere up higher. He said, I just, I backed out the door and got my mom's keys. See, to study in order to revere, because as I revere, I become filled with what I've been studying, and then I live it. Then I live it. But we've got whole religious systems in evangelicalism. I mean, when I say evangelicalism, that's everybody that believes you have to be born again to be saved, okay? That's evangelicalism. we got whole systems of thought, and all we do is study so we can study so we can study so we can study. Give me one more book about it. Give me one more tape about it. Give me one more doctrinal study about it. Give me one more uh, Greek or Hebrew. Uh, and as a result, we live in this ghetto of religion that doesn't reach out and touch anybody much. Or if it does, it's some kind of... I'm not saying there's not places sometimes for interaction. Paul did it. Paul, you know, he, he interacted, he, he argued, the Bible says. But the word argue there doesn't mean to, to fight and fuss. It means to give a, a clear answer. But Paul obviously gave clear answers that were confirmed with signs following because he says repeatedly, uh, I didn't come to you with excellency of speech or, or impressive information, but I came to you in the power of the Spirit. We are now in a place in, in this culture where information is, is overloaded. Everybody's got overload information. And it doesn't matter if the information's even right or not. They get it off the internet. And it, they might as well get it off the bathroom wall somewhere. Uh, and they're just loaded with information. False information. Some true information. But the fact is, we've got so much information, we, we, we're like somebody who's so muscle-bound we can't walk. We got muscles and can't walk. We got information and we can't think. We, we've got religious information and we can't live. We've got uh, spiritual information and we can't move in the power of the Spirit. See? So people are sick, people are bound, people are in all kinds of struggles. And the church should be the one place, the church, and when I say the church, I'm not talking about the building, you understand. I'm talking about me and you, the church, the, the people of God. The government of God in the earth. That's the church, not the building. Not the building. I got, now I got, I got past this a while ago and here I'm going back to it, but I got, I was talking about how, how some, 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 uh, Protestant denominations are more Catholic than they ever, ever would want to admit. I got a friend whose wife left him several years ago. Went off with somebody else, married somebody else. She's turned away from her family, turned away from the Lord. He has uh, become engaged and about to be married to a godly woman. And uh, the church they go to has a big sanctuary, and out next to it they've got a little chapel. Well, they're expecting a lot of people at this wedding, and they need the room of the big sanctuary. But they told him he can't be married in the big sanctuary because he's been married before. So he's going to be married in the chapel. Are you all getting this? Do you see how religion operates? If the look, if the marriage is valid in the little one, it's valid in the big one. If the marriage is not valid in the big one, it's not valid in the little one. Duh! Unless you're religious, then who do you need logic? 
You see why pagans, you see why pagans look at Christians and so, and say, I'd, I'd, I'd rather be drunk. <laughs> do, you, do you understand what I'm saying? Now the Pharisees were the doctors of the law. They were the doctors of the law. Listen, listen to what Jesus says to them here. Does it scare y'all that Jesus came and they didn't get it? Does it scare you? Does it, does it fright, I mean, it frightens me that how could people this knowledgeable of scripture miss it that bad? They didn't just miss it. They missed everything. They missed everything. How could that happen? Here's how Jesus explains it. Beginning here in John chapter 5, verse 36. I have a greater witness than that of John the Baptist. For the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works I do, and bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. And the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time, nor seen his shape. You do not have his word abiding in you. For whom he has sent, you do not believe. What does that mean? He goes on to say in verse 39, Search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life. And they point to me. And you will not come to me in order that you might have life. Now, my, my translation has put verse 39 as a separate paragraph. As if Jesus is talking about a su different subject. That's strictly something done by the translators. There's no justification for it in the text at all. Verse 37, 38, and 39 are all the same subject. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, look, the Father would have revealed himself to you directly if you had asked him to. He would have come to you. He would have put his life in you. He wanted a relationship with you. But you instead chose religion. You study all the time and you don't know him. And the reason I know you don't know him is because when I come, you don't know me. There's not a mystery here about why the Pharisees missed it. I know Christians who are all afraid. They're afraid, well, you know what? The Pharisees could miss it. They had all those scriptures and they understood them. If they could miss it, how, how in the world am I, have I got a chance? I'll tell you how you've got a chance. Same way Mary Magdalene had a chance. She couldn't win an argument with the Pharisees theologically, but she won the big game because of relationship. She had a relationship with Jesus. She had a relationship with God. How is it that the people in the streets who didn't know the Scriptures, like the Pharisees knew the Scriptures, when Jesus comes, they embrace Him, they cry out to Him, they run to Him, and they receive Him, and He receives them, because something in their heart had been opened to the Spirit of God the Father. So when the Son comes, the Father's Spirit is already in the people receiving the Son. Are you with me? Have you ever been around people who quote script? I was, I was downtown one day here when I was pastoring here. I was downtown one day and I walked out of the post office and I heard this terrible noise. I thought, hmm, excitement on Main Street and Boone. I wonder what's happening. And I looked down the street and there was a crowd of people and I walked down there and it, it, it wasn't a fire. It wasn't a fight. Well, not, not exactly a fight. It was a street preacher. And I walked over there, and he had this big old Bible under his arm, little skinny tie, you know, buzz haircut. That always makes me worry when they get that skinny tie. It's not the buzz haircut, but it's the skinny tie and the buzz haircut. You get those together, that's a sure sign, buddy. He looked at me, and he started preaching on long-haired, bearded devils. My hair was longer. And he he preached for about 10 minutes about long-haired, bearded devils. And this little kid, this little ASU student walked up to me. Yeah, you long-haired, bearded devil. <laughs> this little kid, this student, I mean, kid, he's probably 18, 19 years old. 
He's standing there, you know. You can tell he doesn't know the Lord. I mean, he's just... He looks at me and he looks at the preacher and he says, I wonder if he's ever seen a picture of Jesus. And he won't go. (laughs) Religion is murder. Religion is... This guy... This guy, was he was preaching his heart out. I mean, bless his heart. He was preaching his heart out. It turned out there were several of them. You know, there were several of them. It was bad enough to have to deal with this one. I looked around, there's three or four more. It's like black riders you know, coming out from everywhere. But I thought, if I was lost, I'd still be lost. He didn't have anything to give me. He didn't have anything to offer me that would give me hope. He was, he, I was dry bones in his eyes, and all he was doing was telling me I was dry bones. See, under the anointing, you don't, you don't look at dry bones and say they're dry. Under the anointing, you call them to life. They come to life. They come together. They get flesh on them, and then they get breathed on by the Spirit, and they become an army. Under the anointing, you don't just preach dead religion, dead religion. You're dead. Hey, you know, you're, you're in the mud. Let me, let me preach to you. You're in the mud. Thou art in the mud. Amen. That's all. That's all there is. Okay? Now look. Relationship means a willingness to go wherever he is going. I know a woman. You're going to think I'm making this up, but I'm not. A woman who still attends the same building she has attended all her life. Only trouble is the church she attended, which was a Presbyterian church, sold their building to a cult. The cult now meets in that church. She still meets with them. Because that's her, that's her church. That's her building. That's her church. She thinks the church is the building. She now attends a Mormon church. Church. So how weird is that? Well, let me ask you this. What if the Holy Spirit is moving somewhere else right now that you're not used to? What's the difference in her and you? If the Holy Spirit is moving in a direction you're not used to. See, the key, to, the key is you're not used to. This is not something I'm used to. I got a question. If we need revival, and revival is a norm that we are not living in, and we're not living in it, how are we going to be used to it when it comes? Is it, is it profound to say that if I'm used to it, it's probably not revival? <laughs> if, if, if I'm comfortable with it, it's not revival? Do you all understand when the Spirit of the Lord moves the way He wants to move, it's going to interrupt your life? It's going to disrupt your comfort zones? You won't have any comfort zones. Your only comfort zone is going to be in the shadow of the Almighty. If, if the Spirit of God moves the way He wants to move among us, where sin is being exposed and people are being brought to conviction of sin, where unclean activity is being exposed and people are repenting and they're doing it publicly because they're so hungry for God and so under conviction they don't care what anybody thinks anymore, where darkness is beginning to be exposed by the light, where demon spirits are being exposed. Jesus comes in in Mark chapter 1, Every Sunday or every Sabbath day, there was somebody there in that Sabbath activity. But Jesus comes and a man who's been in that synagogue forever starts manifesting evil spirits. It was not in order. It was not what they were used to. Spirit of God awakens reality. Now, what I want to leave with you is this. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have life. And they point to me. And you will not come to me that you might have life. What is it in you right now that is stubbornly saying to God, I want you to show up as long as it's finished by noon so I can get to lunch? Right now. This is the best time to check the pulse of this. I mean, there's not a better time to check it than Sunday morning church. 
What, what do you want God to do this morning? What if the Holy Spirit broke loose this morning and began to minister to people, began to break people's yokes, began to loose people, be, people began to get up and confess, began to open up their hearts, began to testify, word of knowledge began to operate, word of wisdom began to operate, gifts of the Spirit began to move, people began to get saved. Well, God, that's fine, but we got things to do, you know. Let, let me close by telling you this. Right now, across this country, in large gatherings and in small gatherings and in little out-of-the-way places where nobody even has ever heard of it, the Spirit of God is doing just what I just described. I got a call two weeks ago from a church in Jackson, Mississippi. I'm from Mississippi, so this means a lot to me. They went to church that morning, uh, uh, Liberty Church, Ken Summerall, one of his churches, they went to church, normal church. They thought, walked in the door. They found people on the floor at 10 o'clock. They walked in the door. The Spirit of God fell them. As people came in, they just kept falling. They got out of there that night at like 11 o'clock that night. People were at the altar weeping, repenting. People were confessing their sins. Three people were physically healed of maladies they had had all their life. The Spirit of God just came. Denton, Texas, same thing. Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, same thing. But I got a friend in Texas named Marsha Kendall. Any of you know Marsha Kendall? You know Marsha Kendall? Marsha started Flame Fellowship in Texas 30 years ago. Uh, it was very much like full gospel businessmen, but it was especially for women. Marsha has a tremendous uh, teaching ministry. About two weeks ago, she and her husband were out in the backyard uh, doing some work, and they hit a, a, a hornet's nest. And those ground bees, you know, those little nasty yellow jacket kind, they started chasing them and she got stung all over her body and she was running from them and fell and broke her arm in four places. And uh, I know what that's like. Mary broke her ankle two years ago and had to have 14 screws put in it. So I know a little bit about what this is like. They got her to the hospital. They got it all wrapped up, they thought, and got it cleaned up. And next morning she had to speak at a, uh, a flame meeting. So she comes in there with that thing all wrapped up and it, it had begun to have an odor because they had not done something right. So they cut the meeting short and she said, look, y'all got to pray for me. Well, you know, typical, everybody gets around, you know, this is what's happened to us in, in, in Pentecostal and charismatic circles. We pray by ritual, but we don't pray in faith. And so we gather around people and we, you know, we kind of, we like it when there's lots of people who gather around because then we can all share the unbelief. And we all, you know, pray. And I don't mean, I know that, I don't mean that to sound as critical as it is, but it's true. It's true. We're not praying in faith, usually. We're praying in kind of hope. And so they prayed. And she stopped. And she said, look, I know y'all are doing the best you can, but I need God. To, I need help. I need y'all to pray. I need somebody to pray that believes it. So they, they prayed. Now, nothing visibly happened. She, she gets home. That thing is smelling so bad, she goes back to the doctor, they open it up, they clean it out, uh, they find some some uh, pus pockets forming where the stings had been. And they clean all that out, but she, they said, this thing is broken in four places, we're going to have to do surgery. They give her the x-ray to show her where the brakes are. Two brakes are cracks, two brakes are clean brakes. They send her home that night, she's laying there, she dozes off to sleep, and and, and wakes up feeling remarkably refreshed, but she's laying like this. Her cast is lying next to her. The cast that can't be taken off except by two people, not including her. She sits up in bed, and her arm is completely well. The Lord must be in His holy temple. We're all keeping silent. <laughs> I said, let me tell you what I said. I said her arm was completely healed. Completely healed. That's what I said. See, I think enough Baptists are going to have to come in this place to get you Pentecostals raised from the dead. That kind of thing is happening 
in little places, in big places, in quiet places, in revival meetings, in churches. It's even happening in churches that don't even know whether they believe it or not. You know why? The Spirit of the Lord is longing to draw us into our full inheritance. Not only for our sake, but for the sake of a world that doesn't know whether what we have is real or not because we don't seem to know. And when it starts manifesting itself in marriages that stay together and churches that don't split over what color the carpet's going to be, and then beyond that, starts being manifested in people who truly care for the poor, people who truly care for the sick, people who pray with faith, people who move in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, because it's normal for us. When that begins to happen, we will not have to have debates on TV between philosophers and theologians and try to figure out which one won the debate. It's not going to be brain to brain. It's going to be kingdom clashing against kingdom. And we already know which king wins. Are you hungry for that? Do you long for that? What, what we've got to get away from, I'm going to tell you this, we're going, we're going to be dismissed. What we've got to get away from is the idea that somebody from out of town has to come through and do this. This is normal church life. This should happen in the normal body of Christ. See, soaking people in the presence of the Lord. We love to hear stories about Smith Wigglesworth, don't we? Everybody loves to hear. You know why we like Smith Wigglesworth? Because he's dead. <laughs> when you hear about people that do things like Smith Wigglesworth that are alive, they get slandered. They get slandered. Because see, Smith Wigglesworth won't make us feel uncomfortable because he's not here. We can tell stories about him and we like those stories, but he's not here. But let me tell you something about Smith Wigglesworth you, you never hear people tell about. We'd love to talk about how he raised people from the dead and how he prayed for people and they got healed. But we don't tell about how sometimes he laid in the floor by a dead woman for nine hours waiting for the word of the Lord. My goodness, nine minutes makes us heebie-jeebie. <laughs> waiting before the Lord. Waiting before the Lord. I believe the Holy Spirit moved on my sister this morning. But I believe that we need to learn to wait and let the Spirit of God speak to this one and this one and this one. One has a psalm. One has a hymn. One has a tongue. One has an interpretation. As the Spirit of God begins to bring a full-orbed revelation... I remember one time, I'm going to tell you this one story and we'll quit. I got invited one time to a Roman Catholic priest's charismatic retreat. Fifty Roman Catholic priests who'd come to the Lord and been filled with the Holy Spirit and they wanted to know how to go on with God. <clears throat> and I was just a young guy. I was, I was part of another team. And we were there. There was one, one priest there who looked like he was dead. I mean, he looked like he had been laid out in a coffin, but he was up walking around. His skin was gray and, and pasty looking. And when it came time to pray over him, nobody wanted to start praying. I mean, nobody really knew how to pray, you know. And then one, one guy who was on our team, he said, this is weird, but he said, I see a picture in my mind of a, a witch's cauldron. And I thought, yeah, that fits. And then somebody else saw the word, the, the, the number 50. And then I saw the word 7. Now nobody by ourselves wants to say what we're seeing. Because I see, the, I see the, the number 50. And I see the number 7. And it all sounds ridiculous, separate. But when, when the guy said, I, I see a witch's cauldron, and I said, well, I'm just, I'm just seeing the number seven. And then the other guy finally said, well, I'm seeing 50. The guy begins to weep. I mean, just weep. And as he's weeping, he's saying, when I was seven years old, my father was 50. And our local parish priest brought in a fortune teller as part of our uh, fall celebration. And this witch gave a prophecy over my dad that he would die at the age of 50. Well, my dad was 50, and he died two weeks later. 
And he said, she prophesied over me that I would die the same year my father died. I'm 50 this year. That curse was already working in his body. See? Well, you know what? It was no problem at all. We all could move in power then. We all knew we'd heard from the Holy Spirit. But none of us had the whole word. We needed what the other ones had. And together we moved in the name of Jesus, broke the power of that thing off of him, and he is serving the Lord to this day. He's nearly 70, full of the Holy Spirit, ministering around the world. But what I'm, I'm not trying to impress you with what the devil did. I'm trying to impress you with what the Holy Spirit did in, 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 in breaking the power of that. But we stood there around him for, I guess, 20 minutes, kind of nervous, kind of not knowing what to do, kind of embarrassed. And finally, just because I think we got worn down by not knowing what else to do, we began to say out loud what the Holy Spirit had wanted us to say the first 30 seconds. I, I hope this is inspiring in you hope. I hope it's inspiring in you a desire to press in. So I know I know people make mistakes. You know, I have a friend who got filled with the Spirit. He was 72 years old. He had a congregation of people. They got all filled with the Spirit. And I saw him one day and I said, I said, how's it going? He said, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a little older than I was last time you saw me. He said, you know, but he said, uh, I'm happier. I'm tireder, but I'm happier. He said, it, it's a lot easier to take care of a graveyard than it is to take care of a nursery. He said, back in the days when the church was dead, I didn't have much work to do, but he said, now they're all making messes. He said, you know, living things make messes. Living things make messes. I got mad at the church one time over something, and one of my older, wiser teachers walked up and put his arm around me. I was ready to quit and go get me a job at McDonald's or something. He walked over and he put his arm around me and he said, Son, always remember this. The church is like Noah's Ark. It's full of doo-doo, but it's the only thing floating. <laughs> Living things make messes. Living things make messes. Dead things are neat and pretty. You can just put them in a box and bury them. They don't cause any trouble. Living things make messes. Do you want a dead church or a living church? Well, you're already a living church because y'all have some messes. Look around you. I love y'all. I love John. I love y'all. We're at war. The time for playing games is over. The time for going through religious motions is over. <clears throat> we are in the close of history. We have to choose whether we're going to sit on the sidelines and be religious or whether we're going to pay the price and move in the power of the Spirit. Whatever it takes. Father, Forgive me, Lord, of any of my flesh got in the way, but I pray that your spirit would take what's been said today and carry it forward in fullness of truth. In Jesus' name. In the few minutes that we have remaining, let me say that uh, sometimes in a Sunday morning service I get a little carried away and say things with a little less respectability and gentility than maybe I should. And I don't apologize for the heart of the message, but I certainly don't want to be offensive and uh, unfair to anybody. There's always two sides to these stories. It's easy to build paper tigers of, uh, uh, you know, make somebody look bad and tell a story that makes you look good. And, you know, any, any of us can do that. The religious spirit is not always uh, stuffy, starchy, traditionalist. Uh, let me tell you one example. I, I know a dear friend of mine who's a college professor. He's a professor of New Testament history at a college uh, here on the East Coast. And he, he's not particularly charismatic. He's open to the truth of the gifts of the Spirit, but he's not, he's not in the charismatic genre. And uh, he was invited to a meeting a few months ago where there was a lot of charismatic activity, and the sermon was on... Uh, uh, guiding your angels and uh you know all this 
really new age occultism, uh, telling your angels what to do and so forth. There's not one shred of scripture to support that idea, uh, commanding your angels to go do things for you. So that's, that's not in the Bible. And uh, when this friend of mine began to interact with the speaker afterward and show him things in Scripture that contradicted the message, well, the speaker just said, "Look, I've got a I've got a divine revelation that supersedes Scripture." Well, that is a religious spirit. That is the spirit of Antichrist. Now, to an immature, overly excitable person watching this interaction. If you would have said, now, which one's the religious one? Well, they would have picked the guy in the suit with the, the, the black lapels and the, and the tie. They would have said, well, you know, he's got to be the religious stuff shirt. And the guy who's loosey-goosey and freewheeling and uh, emotional, well, he's got to be in the spirit. Well, the fact is, the guy in the suit was speaking the truth, and the Holy Spirit was certainly with him. The uh, speaker was uh, off into la-la land. Uh, which is becoming more and more common in charismatic circles where the authority of Scripture is uh, laid aside for experience and emotion and personal dreams, visions, and revelations. So please don't misunderstand me when uh, I say that uh, the religious spirit, the spirit of Antichrist, is the spirit that resists the move of the Holy Spirit. Uh, That is true. But it also needs to be understood that the same spirit of Antichrist can switch sides seemingly and jump right over there and uh, take on the role of uh, the the spirit that uh, hates the scriptures and puts on a charismatic show for you if you'll let him. And you're still dealing with the spirit of Antichrist. Well, thank you for listening. Thank you for your patience. Uh, Also, I want to just say as a balanced message here, we have many godly Roman Catholics who hear this tape, and I did not in any measure mean to imply that uh, if a person is Roman Catholic, they don't know the Lord till they come over to our side. As we approach the end of the age, more and more, I've said it repeatedly, uh, that uh, everything's going to take on its true nature. And the division's not going to be between denominations and denominations. It's going to be right through the human heart. And many godly people who have been in uh, Roman Catholic circles or Protestant circles uh, will be manifestly uh, revealed as to who they really are. And many, sadly, on the other extreme will be manifested for who they really are. Uh, Let me just read you here from... uh, I'm just going to read this quote. Through the centuries, many have echoed the fervent plea that uh, all who are have orthodox faith in Christ would unite with one another. Even in the midst of the contentious Reformation era, John Calvin wrote that when it came to standing against the great uh, apostasy of atheism, he regarded Rome as his ally. Calvin participated in meetings with Catholic leaders seeking to resolve differences. A century ago, Abraham Kuyper, perhaps the greatest Reformed Protestant intellectual of modern times, argued powerfully for an alliance between Rome and those in the Reformation tradition. A so-called Orthodox Protestant should perceive immediately that when we have in common what we have in common with Rome concerns precisely those fundamentals of our Christian creed now and most fiercely assaulted by the spirit of modernism, Kuiper said. Even Dwight Moody, the great evangelist of the 19th century, reached across the confessional divide when challenged over the fact that he had given funds to the construction of a Catholic church in his hometown of Norfield, Massachusetts. Moody responded, quote, If they are Roman Catholics, it's better that they should be good Roman Catholics than bad. It is surely better to have a Catholic church than none, end quote. Equally significantly, the Catholic community provided the foundations for Moody's church when he later built in Northfield. Conservative scholar J. Gresham Macon calls for evangelicals to recognize their common heritage with Rome, And in more contemporary times, the great Russian writer Alexander Solzhenitsyn reminded us that, quote, in recent years, the major Christian churches have taken steps toward reconciliation, but these measures are far too slow. 
The world is perishing a hundred times more quickly. No one expects the churches to merge or to revise all their doctrines, but only to present a common front against atheism, end quote. So, I hope you understand the spirit of that. I can't spend too much time on it, obviously, but I hope uh, you will re- recognize the spirit of, of uh, what I'm trying to communicate. Thank you again for listening, and uh, Lord bless you, and we'll talk to you again soon, Lord willing.